You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Jimmy Tran. His book that came out last year, uh, Vietnam America, from the fancy Villard Books. Um, GB had sent me his book quite a while ago, and I read it, and I kept screwing up on scheduling this interview. So before we start, I apologize for being a notorious flake for taking uh, so long with this. Ap- apology unnecessary, but uh, I guess accepted. I don't know. Hopefully it didn't take so long because you thought the book was such a grueling read that you had to put it down every two pages and take a month off. <laughs> if that was the case, we wouldn't be sitting here. That's that's true. That's true. Um, it's actually, yeah, it's something kind of I keep in mind. It's folks, they'll send me books. And it's like, it's not a guarantee that yeah. they'll be on the show. If I don't like a book, I don't want to. I believe you gave me that disclaimer when I offered to send you a copy, actually, <laughs> <laughs> sometime last year. God, I'm a prick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were kind of a couple of sheets to the wind. It was when we were all drinking after the show, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that was when we were dragged to this bar in the middle of nowhere this restaurant and i believe like, they locked... prefer to call it the like you know up and coming area <laughs> yeah it was it was under a bridge yeah it was. i don't get it why i don't want to eat under a bridge uh... i don't know where you come from but under bridges aren't classy places um now vietnam america it's your first bigger book but you've been doing comics for a while. Yeah. Um, was it kind of working on stuff leading up to be able to do this kind of big work? Um, well, I mean, I guess how far do we want to go back when we're saying do comics? I guess we should just limit it to stuff that's actually published, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot more unpublished stuff than I do published. Uh, um, yeah, I think on hindsight, uh, well, I mean, my first published or self-published work was a, series, a standalone book, and it was published with the aid of the Zurich Grant way back in like 2001 or 2002. And since then, like, I was just doing projects here and there, and like contributing to anthologies. And on hindsight, like after working on Being America, I realized that more so than anything else, all those little smaller stories were just kind of narrative exercises for me to kind of gear up to do something like Being America. Mm-hmm. So, when did you have the idea you wanted to explore uh, your family's heritage to this extent? Uh, um, well, what basically? I mean, there are a lot of small events that kind of happened that kind of brought me to the point of trying to do the book. But um, the most pivotal ones, I would say, is I went back to Vietnam for the first time in two thousand one. Um, I went there just for the hell of it, not intending to do anything or certainly not intending to find out about my family's past and make into a story or anything like that. I was just going there as a traveler. Um, and while I was there, I was traveling with my mom and dad, and I would just kind of hang out with them in the background as they were kind of rekindling their friendships and relationships with family and friends that they had left behind. And, you know, so I'd just be hanging there like in a cafe with my dad with his old best school chum and they'd be having beers and, you know, at one point his friend would be like, hey, remember that time you were thrown in jail for a couple months, <laughs> like without any just cause? And I'd be like, what? Like, <laughs> You know, because these are things I never even knew or heard about from my parents growing up as a totally ignorant, uninterested little kid in their past. and. And that's how it kind of started, you know, like there'd be a big family dinner with my mom and 
she'd be with her mom and her father and the, our brothers and her sisters and they'd be like oh remember when you were a baby we had to carry you into caves to hide while the french were bombing our, the village and i was just like what you know <laughs> like just these anecdotes that never even occurred to me so that was kind of the that was the initial pivotal you know thing do you but even that, i wasn't taking notes so do you think it was uh, your ignorance or just their own not wanting to kind of relive these both. parts of their past it was, to it was totally both you know i think um and i think i think that's one of the things i was trying to get across in my portrayal my characterization in the book um was the that part of like growing up in the states and being the only the youngest child of four and the only one born in the states and having no connection to this country or this birthplace of my family and not really interested in it because I mean, like a typical typical kid, like just want to read comics <laughs> and play video games, you know? So, and I think also my parents didn't really want to relive the memories because they weren't very happy memories. They're very terrible and traumatic memories. And, you know, if they kind of uprooted themselves to and found themselves in a completely new culture, foreign place, like why would they kind of waste energy trying to teach these things to their kids, especially this youngest kid who totally uninterested in it so when you were growing up what was the notion of the vietnam war um like it would come up in school what no was, no not at all i have no recollection nope not in school not from the family i honestly i would imagine you know that 15 minutes of every high school history class that devotes to the vietnam war happened but i didn't pay attention like i i like i was literally clueless until in the 20s when i started working on this project so. Not even Rambo? Not even Rambo. <laughs> I did see Rambo. Yes, I do remember. But that's that fell under the, the category of violent movies my parents did not let me watch. So, <laughs> I like the, I think the, the most action-packed movies I remember seeing as a kid with them is like Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> like, or The Golden Child or something like that. So, Did your parents bring any traditions with them or do they kind of jump into that American cultural melting pot. No, they definitely they definitely clung to Vietnamese traditions. Um, you know, I grew up in a pretty pretty traditional household as far as like what we were eating and our our practices as far as like spiritual practices and stuff like that. Um, you know, how we celebrated the Chinese or slash Vietnamese New Year and didn't really do very Western things like um, like for instance like birthdays and that's a huge deal in Western culture, but in Eastern culture, or specifically, I can only speak of Vietnamese culture, uh, birthdays, like, you don't acknowledge a person's, a person's birthday at all. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, everybody's birthday is kind of like on the new year, and that's when everybody celebrates. You, there Actually, there are two individual birthdays that you celebrate in Vietnamese culture, according to my parents. The first one is when a baby turns one, because that's a huge... That's a huge celebration because it's like the infant mortality rate was so poor or so great, I guess, that it was a big deal that your baby survived the first year of life. And then the only other birthday supposedly you celebrate is when the person turns 60 because that's the other huge deal because they were, you know, were able to live for 60 years. But everything in between, no, no individual birthday parties. Like growing up, I didn't have birthday parties or nor did any of my siblings. So. Did you feel pretty robbed? No, because it's like, 
I don't know. How, how can you feel like you were being robbed of something when you never knew when you never had it? You know, mm-hmm. like I feel robbed if I had birthday parties and my parents were like suddenly when I turned ten, like okay, no more birthday parties. <laughs> you know, but they never give you birthday parties, so there's nothing. There wasn't a feeling that I was missing anything. No. Going through this experience, learning about your family, how did it change how you kind of understood your own parents? Like, did you kind of go into it with these kind of preconceived ideas and notions and come out looking them in a different way? Um, yeah, I mean, that's still perpetually changing. I think that's actually one of the great things about working on Be in America was that it kind of started, started changing my relationship with my parents. And even now that it's done, all said and done, like it's my, my relationship is still changing with my parents. So I feel like working on the project kind of removed uh, blockages, I guess, uh, about our, for our relationship to continue to develop emotionally. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, the big thing is certainly after finding out everything that they went through, uh, I have a lot more empathy for the way they are, or specifically the way my father is now. Uh, and before that, before knowing these things, I, you know, my father and I definitely butt heads a lot. It's it's really fascinating reading your family story because they're both so different stories, both your mother and your father. And I really got into that just how, like you're saying, he kind of understood your father better and just like how he really came from such an odd place with just so much feeding into yeah. his identity. Um, yeah. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Just kind of give listeners yeah. an idea I mean that's the wonderful thing about when you get to be the editor like you can definitely play up those differences or juxtapose those things between specifically like what you're talking about between how I represent my father and my mother growing up through the book um, yeah because I always consider my mom the more emotional side and my father the more academic side you know not necessarily because one is better than the other, but because that's just their their dynamic with each other. And I definitely wanted to emphasize that throughout the book. So, giving my mom, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's saying a lot more on a, more of a deeper level too, like which parent I, <laughs> I feel closer to. <laughs> Did you know that your father was an artist? Um, no, I didn't. That's why the when I was I found out all that crazy shit in the process of researching the book, it totally, it actually really upset me. Uh, maybe really. tell folks a little bit about that. Oh yeah, okay. Well, what? Well, without being, I don't think this is a spoiler, but one of the character threads in the book is that my father is or was a fine arts painter in Vietnam. And he wasn't, it, it was just something he did on the side, uh, very parallel to how I do comics on the side. You know, I still have a day job to pay the bills and support my family, but whenever I have free time, I like to do comics. And that's what my dad did with painting. So in all his free time in Vietnam growing up, he would paint and basically he got to the point where he had this big gallery show, um, his, his big breakthrough show and his paintings went over really, really well. and. Like uh, foreigners were buying them, and it was super awesome. And it was this, it was kind of like it reached the point in his life. Where it's like, okay, well, this is it. I'm about to make it. You know, I can throw away all those other distractions and focus on my painting full time. Um, but the problem was, this happened 
a couple months before the end of the Vietnam War, which means it happened a couple months before my father and my mother had to make the decision to basically abandon everything they had and to get on their plane with their kids and to come to the States. Um, so as a result, he had to abandon all his work and all his paintings. And to this day, I think only two paintings survive. Um, and I only know where one of them is. Um, and as a result, like that just, I, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting too much, but it just completely killed his career. Like he never painted, I mean, he's painted a little bit since then, but you know, the reality is when you get dropped into a completely foreign world and you gotta suddenly start over from scratch, literally, it's like, how much time are you gonna have to paint, you know? So, yeah. Is that a driving force for you now, artistically? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's true. That's a good question. Um, more so than a driving force, I think it's more of a, a cause to really appreciate the opportunities that I have, uh, no matter how small they've been. Um, because you know, realizing what my, this happened to my father, uh, I I realized that by doing all the research and doing all the interviews, and this exactly coincided when I was 30 years old in the process of doing the preliminary research for the book. And the thing was that age exactly coincided with the age that my dad had to leave Vietnam. So it just made it all that stuff resonate with me even on a deeper level. Because suddenly I was thinking, okay, well, what if I, you know, I have this great opportunity, I'm working on this book, but what if suddenly it was just, you know, on the verge of it getting done, it was snatched away from me and I had, you know, it would never see the light of day. And, I don't know. It really, it really, uh, still kind of, <laughs> yeah. It's it's. I can't wrap my mind around it. Yeah, kind of sure. haunts you. Yeah, it's it's yeah, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, to go back to your initial question, it definitely serves as uh, motivation for me to really appreciate everything that I get the opportunity to do, no, no matter how big or how small. I'm sure. How did your family feel about you putting this book together? Uh, no, I've never asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think just based by their comments now, I think they've reached a point where they're pretty happy about it. You know, yeah. I think they're pretty. My specifically, my parents. I'm guessing you're talk, asking about because they're the main characters in the book. Well, so. I mean, it's. I wonder, like, any Vietnamese family, friends, relatives, anything had seen the book or anything, or. Yeah. Well, you know, all the Vietnamese people in my family are very traditional. So even if they had issues with it, they wouldn't say anything. <laughs> just deeply buried and carried to their grave. Or you just talk about it behind my back with other family members. <laughs> so, and I'm being very serious about that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, some family members have, they've definitely picked up the book. Because when in the process of working on it, like I, I interviewed a lot of people, a lot of, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles family friends and you know everywhere from Vietnam to Toronto from Texas to you know New York to Florida California etc so and a lot of those people who I interviewed have checked out the book and they're just kind of said okay good job you know really really happy for you glad you did this but that's you know nothing too deep <laughs> <laughs> so were yeah. there any works that you looked at yourself um, as kind of an influence on how you wanted to approach this work um well yeah there are tons I mean that kind of that kind of streams into the question of like what are your influences right the obligatory question kind of yeah thing. um I'm trying to think let's see 
It's my way of skirting around the direct question. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of exact specific books because uh, let's see, I started working on the pitch in 2007. So, um, and this would be a lot easier if I was at home and could stare at my library books. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I remember reading and really thought they were done really, really well were Alan's War and Fun Home mm-hmm. at the time. I think that falls around that time period. But, you know, I was, I was, the thing was like, when I, the year that I spent working on the project pitch for this, um, the proposal, like whenever I read a book and I thought something was really interesting, I would just like put a little post-it note on the page, you know, because I knew at some point I'd want to come back to and look at it and re-examine it on a little deeper level. So like <laughs> for a year of my life, basically all the books on my shelf had all these little post-it notes sticking out of them. It's just like, oh, I got to go back and look at that when I actually start drawing these pages. So, and for me, I like most of the influences were all narrative. It wasn't like a like visual influence or mm-hmm. you know story influence, but just more of like how they the tools that they use uh, narrative-wise to tell their stories in an interesting way, um, which I ho- I'd hope to do with the in America. Maybe visually, um, are there any specific choices in style to, that you'd use style, color, art, design to kind of capture the the stories you're telling? Hmm. Yeah. Um... I don't know. I mean, I think when I started, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't specifically looking at anybody's work, if that's what you're asking. No, um, I mean any specific choices if, of your own when doing the work. Oh, well, yeah, visually, stylistically, I, I knew I wanted to go into this project basically uh, not making it all look one specific way. Um, because... Uh, the thing about this is, so my day job, more or less, uh, more so back then when I was working on this book than now, but back then my a huge part of my day job was doing t-shirt graphics for clothing companies. Um, and one of the things that meant was, the, the great thing about doing that was that I could experiment with a lot of different visual styles, you know, like maybe one grab, depending on what the, the audience was. So I could play with you know, just, ink dry brush on something or then something would be like a total straight edge vector colorful graphic or you know maybe I could use watercolors or something else and blah 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 so that kind of experimentation I carried over into my personal work into my comic stuff and I really wanted to definitely take advantage of it while working on being in America so visually depending on which character you're following or which time period you're in in the book it might have a different visual look um, Certainly, that's most obvious in the color palettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, just on the smaller, to a smaller degree, like when I do a quick flashback of my grandfather, who fought for the fought for, with Ho Chi Minh uh, with Viet Minh. Like when I tell his story, I use a lot of communist propaganda poster influence artwork to to tell his story. Um, so, and then like another example is. In the chapter where I tell the story of my father growing up in his early childhood, uh, his one of the books he read, remember reading as a kid, was Tintin. So I use Tintin, you know, Hergé's kind of like very, very rigid structure to tell his story, like mm-hmm. to, to pick that that chapter. So 
Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, had you done any extensive research on a project like this before? Or did no. you, no. do you have any clue what you're getting into? No, absolutely not. I've never done any, like, literally the biggest project that I've done up to this point uh, before Beat in America was a comic I drew when I was 10 years old that ran four and a half issues. <laughs> <laughs> Like, literally. That was the biggest project I'd ever done before being in America, so I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, but, you know, I was, I, I was very enthusiastic and, you know, very up to the challenge, and I had a publisher that was very supportive, and so, yeah, I was just digging away at it, you know? It's, it was the greatest experience of my life so far, for sure. You didn't feel too much like you are in over your head? No, never. I don't... <laughs> I think maybe that... I work really methodically, and I think maybe that helps that not have that feeling. Yeah. Um, because like when I, working on Beat America or working on any project, like I completely uh, like rough or thumbnail out the entire project before I start playing with the dialogue, and then I, I completely pencil out the entire project before I ink the first page, and then I ink the entire project before I color the first page, and then I color the entire project before I start lettering. So. You know, for me, like working that methodically, I always knew what was next, and there was always like obvious benchmarks. Of, like I'm amazed by cartoonists who basically start on page one; they don't have a story. Well, they have a story idea, you know, yeah. and they start on page one in the top left hand corner, and they get down to page, the bottom right hand corner, and they turn the next page, and then you know they're like, I don't know what happens on page five until I draw page four, and then like 60, 80 pages later, they have an amazing story. I'm like, I'm in complete awe by people can work that way. I, I've sat and watched people draw like that and it's just I don't know what's in their head. I know and it, it's amazing to me because like for me if I don't have this very methodic process that gives me this roadmap to be like okay I know I'm right here. I know that in this the entire life of this project I'm exactly at point C right now or point F or point R. You know like if I didn't have that roadmap then yeah I would totally feel overwhelmed and completely lost. For sure. It's amazing to see people's kind of structured kind of work ideas of, of making the work. Like you look at something, I don't know if you ever looked at Alec Longstrath's um... Yeah, Basewood? Huh? Are you, are you talking about Basewood? Or... Yeah, but his way of doing things like he has this weird like percentage of things like he has it all yeah. <laughs> fine-tuned down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's great. I remember, yeah, because on his blog, he would show, like, okay, percentage of inks, done. Percentage of, like, you know, pencils, done. Like, yeah. <laughs> and there's other folks that, like you say, will just start in the upper corner and work their way down. Well, depending on which hand they draw with left or right. Yeah, hand. like, doesn't Chris Ware work like that? I, Apparently, I, yeah, he doesn't script. And that's, that's blows my mind. <laughs> like... well, especially when you read something like Lint. Where yeah. it's just like seems so perfectly tuned, like everything to that. Or, yeah. I mean, for me, like the other nice benefit of working so methodically is like, you know, when you're drawing a project that's almost 300 pages long, there's definitely going to be some artwork that looks pretty shitty. <laughs> so I feel like when I know, when I can jump around because I have a roadmap, then it kind of like equally kind of hides all the crappy artwork so it's not like all in the first 50 pages while I'm kind of learning how to draw the project you know so now you doing the book for kind of a big 
regular book publisher, what kind of ideas do they have around how comics were made? Do they kind of get it, or did it take um, a lot of hand-holding? Yeah, well, in my experience with Millard, I, I feel I was very fortunate because my editor that was working on the project had a really strong background in, in manga and comics in general. Um, so working with her, I could show her extreme, what I considered extremely raw sketches, and she kind of understand the gist of the, the story. Like she wouldn't say, oh, is that supposed to be a building or what is this character doing? Like she knew like all that stuff would resolve later in the, the process as the art got cleaned up. So yeah, I was really happy with working with my editor. I think she really got it. And I think she helped really create a beautiful book. No, like there's no I, anything that I asked for with this book because they, they didn't say no to, which I felt really, you know, like I said, hey, can I print on the end sheets? And they're like, sure. It's like, can I get a dust jacket? And the dust jacket, you know, print on the hardcover. Like, yeah, sure. Like, can I get hand sewn binding so at least flat? And when you're reading it, it's like, sure. You know, so I feel really, really fortunate. <laughs> I so. That's good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very good. Um, after doing such an ambitious project, where did you kind of want to go with your work? Because I mean, that came out last year, so I'm presuming you had it finished a couple years ago. Uh, yeah, it was finished in all the edits. I was I finally c approved the color proofs in October of 2010. So coming up on two years now. Whoa, shit. <laughs> I'm ready to get back to work. <laughs> um, no, well, you know, the thing was a project that large after I finished it, as soon as the book came out, which I didn't really understand, you know, comprehend the, the extent of this, of how much work goes into the press and marketing uh, of the book, you know, as, as a creator, just doing a lot of interviews. And, you know, I really busted my balls in 2011, just traveling to all these shows and I was doing at least a show a month and traveling at least twice a month, you know. Um, that's when we met each other at Stumptown, too. Mm -hmm. um, so as a result, I really didn't get to do any long-term work during that time because it was all about pushing the book. And only now, I think, in 2012, can I feel like, okay, really the push is done and the book has, it can kind of live on its own now. Um, and now I can kind of pick up on the projects that I had started last year but didn't get to seriously push um, so and I also have a kid now so that's kind of <laughs> resulting in completely structuring my life as well so, how old's your kid she is four and a half months she oh, was wow. four, 14 yeah so 2011 was a blockbuster year like Beauty America came out uh, it got some you know some really great things happened from it um, and then my wife got, you know we being pregnant uh, so yeah it's crazy. <laughs> Mazel tov. Thanks. <laughs> um, well, where do you want to take your, your comic making now? Like, Oh, well, the, I mean, the projects I'm working right now are definitely continue to explore the themes that were kind of brought up in Be in America. You know, I think they're pretty, the three major themes of the book are um, conflict, immigration, and family legacy. Um, so I have a project right now that I, has started and stopped and started and stopped. I'm really hoping I get my shit together uh, about that really focuses on the immigration theme. Mm -hmm. um, it's 
working with actually a bunch of other artists and cartoonists and animators and illustrators. Um, and then the other project, the solo project that I'm doing myself is, or drawing myself, I should say, is with a, a woman who started a foundation in Rwanda to archive stories of the genocide. So, <laughs> so after the wonderfully upbeat, hilarious laugh riot of Vietnam America, I've, <laughs> I've decided to do a project about a Rwandan genocide survivor search for his sister and like how she died and justice oh, for Jesus. <laughs> so, yeah, so no, I'm definitely sticking within the same uh, type of work, and I'm very happy about that. Like, I, I really enjoy doing this work. So. Is it kind of freeing to do other people's stories? Um, right now it is. Ask me that like a year down the road. <laughs> if we want, like, if we want to totally strangle each other. Like, <laughs> but, I mean, that was my hesitation. Like, with Beat America, I had complete, total creative control. Yeah. Uh, the narrative and the, not just the artwork, but just mainly the narrative and the editing. And so, but I think, you know, when you collaborate with someone, there's always the wonderful potential that you come up with something way better than either of you could have ever imagined. And so far, I think this is where the direction is going with the Rwanda project. Nice. Yeah. Not a nice yeah. situation, but happy to hear you have a good project going. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, hopefully we'll find a publisher and then we can announce it in the next couple months and, you know, keep chugging along. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you doing any conventions coming up or anything over the fall? Trying mm, not just XBX. Like, after I totally did, I, like, literally 2011 was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it was all self-funded, too. It's just all out of packet. Like, I started with Seattle Comic Con and and then flying back for Stumptown, and then TCAP, and San Diego, and MoCA, and then Heroes Con I was supposed to go, but it just didn't work out, and then you know, XBX, New York Comic Con. And then in addition to that, all the, the other events, like getting the opportunity to do university visits and college visits and stuff like that, and it's just, it was just crazy. So as a result, 2012 is really, like I did MoCA, um, I went to San Diego, I didn't do San Diego, but I did go just for a, a couple of nights, and then XBX, and that's it. Like, I'm not even doing New York Comic Con, just literally in my backyard, you know. Have you been to San Diego before, or had you been before? Yeah, yeah. I've uh, actually been going to San Diego as an attendee off and on for over 15 years, uh, and as an exhibitor for the last six years. I've never been, but it strikes me as uh, kind of a madhouse. Yeah, it totally is. I mean, but I'm sure. <laughs> Knowing all the people you've talked to who have gone, um, you you basically have had the experience of going to San Diego minus like the sweat. Like, <laughs> I'm not a good sweater. Yeah, so you're you're good. You're totally good to go. Like there's no <laughs> reason for you to go. And and really, actually, after exhibiting in Small Press last summer, you know, Sunday rolled around. We called it a con, and I was just like, I don't think I'm coming back. Like I I feel like I've run my course with San Diego as an exhibitor. Um, and so I wasn't planning to come back this summer, but when the book was nominated for an Eisner, I was, I was like, ah, shit, you know, this is kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, you know? <laughs> like, I talked to my wife, and, I, and basically it boiled down to us wondering, like, okay, would what would I regret more? Would I regret uh, the ridiculously slim chance winning the Eisner and not being in San Diego to get it, or would I regret more going to San Diego and not winning the Eisner. Um, 
and we decided it was the latter. So I scraped together some money and went up there for an Eisler ceremony, and I didn't win. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, whoever won. That's probably Joe Sacco, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's actually uh, a guy. The book's called Green River Killer. Have you heard of that book? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Yeah, neither have I actually. So uh, congratulations to him. <laughs> uh, but I have a friend who told me about it and really liked it. Um, takes place not far from where I'm at. Um, well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, GB. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy your uh, sunny uh, Saturday in the studio. Yeah. Well, now I can turn the AC back on, so... <laughs> <laughs>
life is changing Try, just try to make it by Just make it by